Lord, our uh, God and Heavenly Father, uh, we give you thanks for your uh, holy word, for the truth that it tells us about you and about who we are and about our salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you as well for the truth that it tells us about the great enemy of our souls, Satan, and of his sure defeat. We pray, O Lord, that today we would take your word to heart and it would impact our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, Uh, amen. Whenever a nation is at war, it expends uh, great energy and resources to discover intelligence about the enemy. One of the greatest things you could know is where the enemy is going to move next, the maneuvers that it's going to uh, engage in, uh, where its next point of attack is uh, going to be. It's helpful to know facts about the strength of the enemy's army at different places. Uh, Intelligence about the enemy is extraordinarily helpful. Dear friends, you and I, have a great enemy, an enemy that is greater and more destructive than any opposing army. That great enemy of our souls is that ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, the liar. Uh, He has been our enemy uh, from the beginning. He's been the enemy of God and of God's work in this world. But the good news is that we have intelligence about this enemy, about his maneuvers and about his attacks. Dear friends, we have not only intelligence about what Satan is intending to do, we have intelligence as well about exactly what is going to be done to him. That's what our passage today brings before our eyes. So, In the same way that if we were engaged in a war, we would want to know enemy intelligence, you and I today, from God's word, can gain this information about Satan, the great enemy of our souls. So let's look at this passage today under three different headings. Uh, First of all, we're going to consider Satan's release. Uh, Secondly, Satan's attack. And then lastly, Satan's demise, Uh, Satan's release, uh, Satan's attack, and then Satan's demise. Three simple points out of our passage uh, today. And these will kind of just go in order as we march our way through this uh, passage. The first of the three things that we can see about our enemy is Satan's release. Uh, In verse 7, we're told that when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And this really uh, is the continuation of what we read back in verse 3, which we were told that uh, that ancient serpent, the devil, was by an angel thrown into the pit. That pit was shut. And it was sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And so back in the beginning of Revelation 20, we were told of that time when Satan was bound. And you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, we said that that happened at the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when by his saving work on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead, uh, Satan's activities were greatly curtailed. Now, in saying that Satan is bound, it does not mean, you and I know, that he is entirely inactive. Uh, The Bible tells us that he still goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible tells us that unbelievers are still in darkness, that they are blinded by Satan, and they are willingly under the leadership of the prince of the power of the air. 
Uh, the Bible tells us that Satan still exercises many schemes which we must resist. That Satan still tells lies which we must counter. That you and I are to utilize the armor of God to resist Satan and his demons. So Satan is still active, absolutely. But Satan being bound means that he cannot prevent the spread of the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ has defeated Satan by his cross and resurrection, and Satan cannot stop the spread of the gospel or prevent vast millions of people from being called into the folds of Christ's church. And that every single person for whom Christ died will be called, justified, sanctified, preserved, and glorified, and Satan can do absolutely nothing about it. Satan is bound. So Satan is bound. But this passage now tells us that there is coming a time when Satan will be released. What does this release of Satan refer to? Well, it means a period of intense rebellion at the end of this church age when once again, as our passage says, he will, quote, verse 8, come out to deceive the nations. That is, that the darkness of idolatry and false religion will be cast over this earth to an even greater degree, and the wickedness of human rebellion and and sinfulness will be exercised without restraint by the ungodly. Now, this idea of a heightened rebellion just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ is an idea that we find in several places throughout Scripture. So Matthew 24 and verse 21, Jesus says, For then, referring to this time, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Or 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. There, in speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, it says that Christ, quote, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Uh, That, of course, is referring to the Antichrist through whom a Satan is going to work. And so the idea is, is that though Satan is bound in this church age, that there is coming a time just prior to Christ's coming in which there will be a heightened rebellion against the Lord. But this passage teaches us that that time is going to be short. We see that in verse 3, do we not? After that, back in verse 3, he must be released, quote, for a little while. That's the promise. For a little while. We read, actually, the same thing back in Revelation chapter 11. Back in Revelation chapter 11, the church was represented by the twin witnesses of Moses and Elijah who testify for 1,260 days, or three and a half years. And that represents, that symbolic number represents the time of the church's witness or testimony in this world. But when their witness is concluded, Revelation 11 tells us that the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them until Christ raises them three and a half days later. So did you get the contrast there? Three and a half years of witness, this present church age, followed by three and a half days of intense rebellion, the final release of Satan. Okay, these are symbolic numbers. Uh, But the time indicators are there, is it not, that this period of rebellion is but a little season, and it has a definite end. But I want you to notice something else also about Satan's release. 
And it is simply this, that Satan cannot instigate this period of intense rebellion until he is released. And who determines the timing of Satan's release? Not him. Not him. But God. That's one of the great encouragements about this entire passage. That the devil is completely under the sovereign control of God. Christ wins the victory. The devil is bound, and he is bound for the time that the Lord has appointed until by the Lord's sovereign control, he is released, and then only for a little season. Martin Luther once called the devil God's devil. I think that's such a beautiful phrase. And Luther said this to emphasize that Satan acts only by the permission and the sovereign will of Almighty God. So why, why in God's purpose, is Satan going to be released for a little time like this? I don't know. Perhaps, maybe, it's to show that the human heart hasn't improved over time that people haven't gotten better and that our only hope for salvation in every age all the way up till the end is only in Jesus Christ. Or maybe God's purpose in it is to show the supreme power of Jesus Christ that even when Satan rages his hardest, Christ is going to come and going to win. But but I don't know. But what I do know and what this shows me is that I can have utter confidence in the complete sovereignty of God. And that when I face Satan's assaults, even now in this life, while Satan is bound, I can know that God means it for my good, that he means it to sanctify me, and it makes me rely on him. And so, whatever Satan does... He does under the sovereign control of God and it is for the good of God's people and for God's glory. And what it means as well is that when that time does come, when God releases Satan for a little season prior to Jesus' return, that at that moment it's not that Jesus has stepped off of his throne or that the Lord has stopped caring for his church. But rather, it means that God has lovingly determined that a season of more severe persecution will actually more greatly show God's preserving power among his people and will glorify his holy name. And so when you and I read of something like this, we ought not simply to be quaking in our boots. Oh, has the Lord lost control? No. No, he hasn't. Satan is only released because the Lord has released him. The devil is God's devil. First point, Satan's release. Secondly now, I want us to consider Satan's attack. Satan's attack. What happens when Satan is released? Well, we are told that he is going to come out to deceive the nations uh, that are at the four corners of the earth that Satan is going to stir up the nations of the earth to persecute the church to a degree that has never been done before. That anti-Christian forces will unite and assemble and fiercely oppose the church, acting at the behest of Satan himself. Now, the the battle that is described in our passage today is the same battle as that, is, as that which is described in Revelation 16.12 and following, and also in Revelation at the end of Revelation chapter uh, 19. Okay, so what we have here are not three different battles, but rather a single battle described from three perspectives, each corresponding Uh, to the emphasis of that section of the book of Revelation. Uh, And there's lots of evidence for this. 
uh, on the one hand, in all three cases, we read uh, that this battle is not described as a battle, uh, but it is the battle. And similar language is used in all three descriptions. For example, in Revelation 16, 14, we're told that the kings of the whole world come together. Or in Revelation 19, 19, that the kings of the earth with their armies are gathered to make war. And here in Revelation 20, that the nations are gathered for battle. So it's similar language that describes these. And in each one of these, there is an intense battle that is then followed by a final judgment. So this is describing once again for us this battle that occurs just before uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here the focus is especially on Satan. It's on Satan. Well, what are some things that we see about about this final rebellion. Well, on the one hand, it's one that is worldwide, is it not? He deceives the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now, uh, uh, there there are some people who have read Revelation and think that this uh, final battle of Gog and Magog, it's talking about a, a final attack by a nation like Russia or China or Japan upon the West. Well, that's just simple silliness. Here it makes it clear that this is people from all nations, the four corners of the earth, who are uh, gathering together against uh, the church. And so it's a worldwide rebellion. Then it uses this language of Gog and Magog. What is this? Well, these are actually terms that are borrowed uh, from the book of Ezekiel in chapter 38 and 39. Uh, Ezekiel uh, uh, prophesied of events, um, really of events that would happen some 400 years later, and then ultimately what would happen uh, at the end of the world. Uh, But the proximate uh, 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 prophecy uh, was that of during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, that the Seleucids located in northern Syria would bitterly persecute the Jews. And Gog was the prince of Magog, that is, Syria. And so what we have here in Revelation 20 is it's using these Old Testament terms which prophesied of a particular uh, battle, and it's using that to now symbolically describe what is going to happen at the end time. Just like earlier in Revelation, we read of Armageddon. We saw that Armageddon was a reference to uh, an Old Testament place and a battle, and it's a symbolic representation of what's going to happen now at the end of time. So here it uses this language of Old Testament prophecy and terrible persecution to make vivid in our minds that this final final attack of anti-Christian forces against the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's going to be a vicious, severe persecution of the church. It's going to be worldwide. It's going to be a numerous people that are gathered against the church. Their number, we're told, is like the sand on the sea. Can't go out to the seashore and count uh, the sand that is uh, laying there. And similarly, the picture is of a vast multitude that are arrayed against uh, the church of Jesus Christ. And as well, the, uh, the, uh, the attack is going to be fierce. It describes it in verse 9 as them marching up over the broad plain of the earth. Okay, it pictures, as it were, the the earth as the battlefield. And these vast, numberless armies marching over the earth and then coming and besieging or surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What what an image this is of a a period of severe persecution. But there's a particular beauty to this picture of the church. Again, two images that are used to describe the church. The church is on the one hand, the camp of the saints. You're thinking here of a camp, the allusions to the 40 years of wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament. But it's a description frequently as well of of the new covenant church. In that the church is a camp 
it's a reminder that our, uh, 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 our lasting home is not in this present age, that we are strangers and pilgrims, that we're exiles on the earth, that our citizenship is in heaven, that heaven is our inheritance, that we long for that day when we will see uh, the Lord face to face. And so that phrase here, the camp of the saints, reminds us that our true home isn't here. But then it describes us not only as the camp of the saints, but then also the beloved city. That language of the beloved city points really to the stability of God's people. Even as Abraham, we're told in Hebrews 11, uh, looked for that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We read elsewhere that the church is like Mount Zion, which abides forever. That this stable city belongs to God. Even more than that, it's described as the beloved city. That is, this city which is under siege by the world is that which is loved by God, supremely loved by God. What a beautiful picture this is. So even in this coming day when Satan will be released and the attack against the church will be severe, even then we are reminded on the one hand that we are a camp, that our home has always ultimately been in heaven, and that we are a city that is loved by God. And as Romans 8, 38 and 39 tell us, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, dear friends, not even that final attack of Satan upon the church and severe persecution, not even that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The church on that day, dear friends, will be the beloved city. So will these be, what's described here, will these be frightening days for God's people? Well, in one sense, yes. Persecution is never pleasant. Ask brothers and sisters who have undergone those things throughout the world, have suffered imprisonment and separation and death for the cause of Jesus Christ. They are hard days. But what I want to stress is that even in the midst of those very hard days, we, we as God's people have the assurance of God's love and of his care and of his protection. We are still his. We belong to him. The season is but short. And as we're just about to see, it's going to end in victory. So we need not ultimately be scared or fearful of that coming day, or our confidence is in our strong and sovereign God. So we've seen Satan's release and what that means. We've seen Satan's attack. But now thirdly and finally, I want us to consider Satan's demise. Satan's uh, demise. Uh, this entire passage is preparing us, is it not, for a great battle? We have the people of God as this camp, this city. Satan instigating the nations of the earth to come out as a numberless army, marching up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounding or besieging God's people. And as we read these, these verses, perhaps uh, we, we tighten up a little bit and we prepare ourselves for the battle that is about to come. Dear friends, here we read that when that moment of battle comes, there is no battle. The same thing that we saw at the end of Revelation 19. Do you remember we made the exact same point there? It's preparing us for some great battle. And then suddenly, all that we read is this. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. When the world comes to persecute the church, it says that that persecution is going to end in this moment of final judgment when the Lord Himself is going to undertake on behalf of His people and come in power and glory 
and final judgment upon all the enemies of, of his church. And just as suddenly as lightning flashes out of the sky, yesterday evening, okay, we had a brief thunderstorm, at least we did where my house was, and it was a sudden flash of lightning. We could even see it in the sky. It seemed to come, and it came quickly. Well, it's with that kind of suddenness, we're told, that Jesus Christ is, suddenly, is going to suddenly come and defeat his enemies and defeat them in but a moment. 2 Thessalonians uh, uses this same language. I quoted this verse when we looked together at the end of Revelation 19, and I want to quote it again. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. They're talking about the final rise of the Antichrist. Then the lawless one will be revealed. And what happens when the lawless one or this Antichrist at the instigation of Satan is going to be revealed at the time of final battle? We are told simply this, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. Friends, the church is besieged. Satan is His fiercest. And what happens? The Lord Jesus simply appears in glory out of heaven. And all of his enemies are finally defeated. Even Satan himself. That's the promise. I was reading this and thinking about it. My mind kind of goes to, you know, you, you, as of this illustration, you can think of it on a, on a playground and there's a little kid that's playing out there by himself and a group of three or four bigger bullies. You know, two or three years, maybe four years older than that little kid, they come. They begin to bully that little child, tell them to give them money or to, to do something, and they're going to destroy them. Well, the, the, the little kid, unbeknownst to these bullies, his big brother is right around the corner. The big brother appears. By his very appearance, what happens to those bullies? They scatter. They're gone. Well, dear friends, that's what's going on here. Yeah, Satan's going to mess with the church. And that church looks weak and it looks small and it looks insignificant compared to the powers of this world. Its resources seem to be very few. Its people are so ordinary. And Satan thinks, yes, I can come and stamp out the church. Finally, the victory is going to be mine. And he begins to do war. And oh, the powers of the enemy look so great indeed. Then what's going to happen? Well, dear friends, our big brother... The Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear, as it were, from around the corner. He's going to tell that bully of, of Satan, you mess with my church. What does it say in the Old Testament? You touch them, you've touched the very apple of my eye. When Saul was persecuting the church, you remember Acts chapter 9, what did the Lord Jesus appear to Saul and what did he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because the Lord Jesus undertakes for His church. And He's going to do so on that final day in glory. He's going to appear. And can you just read verse 10? And there ought to be a certain joy as we read the words of verse 10 because then we're told there that the devil who had deceived them and think of the, of the devil and all the destruction that he has wrought ever since the original creation of mankind Think of the sin that He has enticed people into. Think of the misery that He has brought. Think of the wars that have been instigated at His behest. Think of the blindness and the darkness which He has brought upon mankind. And this wicked, evil devil, we are told, and this with all certainty, that the devil who deceived them is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This devil is going to be finally defeated. He is never going to rise and deceive anyone again. What news this is. What wonderful news. Because we live again in the midst of a day in which, yes, Satan is bound, but Satan is active. And we feel his effects all around us. But friends, do you see what this is saying? It is saying there is coming a day at Jesus' second coming 
when Satan is no longer going to tell his lies to us. He's no longer going to persecute his people. He's going to be done for, finally, for good, forever and ever, the words are. That's the good news of this passage. Along with the beast and the false prophet whom he inspired, along with Babylon with all of its empty promises of worldly glory and splendor, this devil is going to be finally judged, cast into the lake forever. Satan's I want to close with just a few words of application. Three words of application from this. And with this we'll be done. The first point of application is this. It is that Satan's sure and coming judgment means that those who are willingly under Satan's power need to be rescued. Satan's sure and coming judgment means that those who are willingly under Satan's power need to be rescued. The teaching of the Bible is, unless you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, that you are willingly under the power of Satan. Now, now you might say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not under Satan's power. Well, let's think about it for a moment together. What does Satan delight to do? Well, he delights to rebel against God and disobey his commands. What about you in your life? Are you disobeying the commands of God? Are you doing so without repentance? Well, then you are under Satan's power. What else does Satan like to do? Well, Satan doesn't like to worship God. Do you like to worship God? If you say, no, I do not, then you are under Satan's power. Well, Satan hates the church of Christ. He doesn't love the church of Christ, which is Christ's bride. What about you? If you do not love the church of Jesus Christ, which is his bride, the people of God, then you are under Satan's power. And so the teaching of the Bible is, unless you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are willingly under the power of Satan. And what I want to tell you today is that this Satan, whom you are bound to and whom you are following and whom you are enslaved by, that there is coming a day in which this Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire and eternally judged forever and ever. And I am saying that if he is going there, you will be going there with him. Unless you are saved by Jesus Christ. Get off of this sinking ship. Cry out to the Lord to save you. You need to be rescued. And the Bible tells us the good news of how we can be rescued from Satan's power. And it points to one figure who has done it. And it is Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. I plead with you by faith. For Satan's destruction is near, as well as the destruction of all who are under his power. So that's the first point of application, okay? It's a call to salvation, a call to place your faith in Jesus. Secondly, Satan's sure and coming judgment, we're going to begin with those words again, Satan's sure and coming judgment motivates... Christians to resist all of Satan's temptations. Satan's sure and coming judgment motivates Christians to resist all of Satan's temptations. If you are a Christian today, you are tempted by Satan. 
that those temptations come in a whole variety of different forms. Maybe for some of you, it's while you're in the secret of your home, in a private place where no other eyes are, that you are indulging in a pornography, the lust of the eyes. Maybe for some of you, it's that you find in your life that increasingly you are loving material things, worldly things, more than you're loving God. For others of you, it's a temptation to not read your Bible. Give up reading your Bible. For others of you, it's a temptation to be discontent. Always dreaming about what you might have and what you wish you had rather than what you have been given. For others of you, it may be a temptation to despair. And you fear the coming day. And you despair maybe about your own life or about your family's life or about the church. There's a variety of ways in which Satan tempts us. And friends, when you are tempted by Satan, what he is trying to do is he is trying to make himself appear as the wise one with the secrets to life. And we need to remember that really he is the doomed one going to destruction. Let me put it to you this way by way of illustration. If there was uh, an, an, an investment firm that wanted your business and said, we want you to come to us and we're going to tell you how you can invest all of your money. Now, if you knew that in two years, if you knew beyond a shadow of doubt in two years, that investment firm was going to go under and it was, it was going to make stupid decisions, it was going to lose everybody's money, it was going to go under, would you today be willing to follow their guidance about where you ought to invest your money? Well, we would all say, no, of course not. Well, dear friends, when there is a devil who is about to go under, why in the world would any of us follow his advice about how we ought to live our lives? Don't do it. See through his temptations. When he tempts you, say, Satan, you're about to be judged. I'm not going to listen to you. You don't know the way of happiness. You are not telling me the truth. And we see through it like that. He is the doomed one. And so resist his temptations. That's the second point of application. Third point, final point of application is this. It is that Satan's sure and coming judgment reminds Christians that they can endure to the end. Satan's sure and coming judgment reminds Christians that they can endure to the end. Is it hard to be a Christian in today's world, in a world where Satan lives and where he schemes, where he persecutes, where he mocks? Is it hard to be a Christian today? And the answer is yes. There are a lot of things that are hard about being a Christian today. It is true. And Revelation 20 says that it may get harder. Okay? That's what this is saying. It may get harder before Jesus returns. But Revelation 20 is also saying, remember this, that the time in which we are called to endure is short. It's but a little while. It's a little season. And one thing that the book of Revelation, as well as the New Testament scriptures, continually do is they point our eyes to the coming of Jesus Christ and they remind us, Jesus is coming again. Endure. Press on in light of His coming. Romans 15.5 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with each other. Dear friends, Satan's season is short. The Lord calls us to endure. There is coming an end. There is coming a judgment day. So keep on keeping on. When it's hard to be a Christian, 
remind yourself of what Revelation 20 says. That the devil is going to be judged. That this present order is coming to an end. That Jesus is coming back. Or as Romans 16.20 tells us, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Soon, the Bible says. Soon. But can you and I keep pressing on in the way of faithful obedience to this loving, victorious God who has saved us? Might the answer be yes. Some of you who are young, is it worth it to live your life devoted to Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Because the time is coming soon when he is going to appear. Satan will be destroyed. Your friends, let's draw encouragement from this. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for this sure promise, Revelation 20, that though Satan's release is coming, that he is still your devil. That though the attack will be severe, that the church is still the camp, indeed the beloved city of God. And remind us as well that when, that's, when that attack is most severe, that at that very moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear on the clouds of glory. And the end will come, and we will be forever with the Lord, with Satan destroy. Lord, our God, comfort us and encourage us with this perspective. Help us to live in light of it and to take to heart your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing now in preparation for the Lord's uh, table. Our hymn is hymn number 476. It is well with my soul. We'll sing stanzas one through three. We'll stand together.
seated. Come today to the Lord's table. We read for us the words of First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Come today to the Lord's table, this table which celebrates the victory of Jesus Christ over Satan. That by his death on the cross, he has disarmed principalities and powers. He has won victory uh, over them. Our salvation is absolutely secure in Jesus Christ if you are trusting in him. When the flood waters come about us, we are safe in the ark of Noah. Jesus Christ is our salvation now and forevermore. And that is what we come to this table to remember. We come to this table as well in joyful anticipation of that time when Jesus Christ will once again appear out of heaven and by his very appearing bring Satan into final judgment. So I encourage all of you today who are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior who are looking to Him by faith, who have repented of their sins, are trusting in Him, and have made a public profession of that faith, and have joined yourself as a member uh, in good standing to a church where Jesus Christ is faithfully preached, I invite you today, come and welcome at this table of the Lord. But if you are not looking in Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ by faith, or have not Uh, uh, professed your faith in him and joined yourself to his visible people, then don't come to this table today, but might it be that soon you would join us here at this table of the Lord, at this table where we remember by this sign and seal uh, the the victorious death of Jesus Christ uh, for his people. So let's now look to the Lord uh, in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this table of the Lord. We pray, O living God, now that you would, um, by your Holy Spirit, uh, as it were, lift our souls into heaven to commune with Christ where Jesus is. We pray that as we eat of the bread and drink of this wine, O Lord, that by faith we would truly feed on the one who is our Savior, the only Savior, over sin and over death, and yes, over Satan himself. Bless us and encourage us by this sacrament today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the very night that he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. As I ministering in his name, give it unto you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. We'll hold on to the bread and eat it together at my direction.
in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's eat and bread together. After supper, he also took the cup. And after giving thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, and he said that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And there is wine on the inner circle of the plate, grape juice on the outer circle. And once you receive the cup, hold on to it, and we'll drink uh, together at my direction. again to God in prayer. Lord, we do give you thanks. We can be assured absolutely of this, that Jesus Christ has died for sinners like us, and that all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ will in no wise be cast out. Lord, our God, strengthen our faith and help us to live as your disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll take up our deacon's offering now. We've received so much from the Lord. This is a chance to give uh, back to him uh, for the needs of those in our church and outside of our church with temporal and material uh, needs.
stanza of him. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.